Hello and welcome to Session, the platform where we offer you candid conversations between curious students and seasoned professionals. We're your hosts, two sophomores from the UT Macomb School of Business. And whether you're trying to figure out your career pathway or just want to broaden your knowledge, you're in the right place. So sit back, relax, and let's start the session. Hey, on today's show, we're bringing on Kevin Lanau, Director of Private Equity Services at Alvarez and Marcel. From his unorthodox transition in the Marines to the corporate world, along with his valuable lessons about leadership, we hope that you enjoy today's episode. So welcome, Kevin. Uh, Very glad to have you on today. I'm going to jump right into the first question. So can you just tell us uh, briefly about your early background and why you decided to study marketing as an undergraduate? Yeah, of course. So I'll go way, way back, you know, to the dark ages when... I, when I got a beta Gmail account to give you some context. Uh, So all the way back then, I was part of a marketing association called DECA, which is a marketing association for students in, in high school. And through that, I did some really fun competitions, uh, one first in state for, for multiple different years. Uh, and really just enjoyed the case study uh, mentality of of looking through a problem and, and trying to solve it. So that translated to wanting to pursue marketing in college. During my time in college, I actually joined the United States Marine Corps while I was in school. So I interrupted my college education and did some fun vacations to Iraq, um, to little fobs in the middle of middle of nowhere. Uh, fob is a Ford operating base. So I uh, also went to boot camp. So I had a lot of school interruptions. So it took me five years to graduate. But when I graduated, uh, there was a pause in military hiring. And I had wanted to become a Marine Corps officer. So I actually had to take another detour and went over to work at Target uh, as an executive team leader of logistics, which I had some experience of in the Marine Corps because I operated a convenience store that was a mobile convenience store in Iraq. So I got to drive around Iraq and and bring the essentials of warfare to the, the Marines throughout the area, you know, protein powder, tobacco, just the essentials. Um, so that's that's my early background. I then joined the the military as an officer in the United States. I just want to go back and did that for six years. I just want, I just want to retrace our steps a little bit uh, about when you were in college and you initially thought of joining the Marine Corps. So for most of the people that listen to the podcast, they are college students like us. And I feel like there's this calling that we have in our head, like, oh, this is the major I'm doing. This is what I'm going to pursue. And you were doing marketing and I don't know where you go into Marine and Navy and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about why the switch? Like, was there something influencing you? What was like this calling in your head? So for me, it was, uh, it was a couple things. Um, 9-11 was, was fresh in, in my mind and um, the Marines were not just um, an amazing organization, but super well known for their leadership. 
And I found every Marine that I talked to just to be a great leader and was something that I really wanted to be able to pursue and, and do at a high level. So there was a couple different reasons, but, um, but basically uh, ended up doing it as a leadership opportunity. And when I joined the Marine Corps enlisted uh, during college, I was not exactly sure if I was going to do the officer program, but meeting the Marines made me just completely sold. I wanted, I wanted to help these Marines in any way I could. And if, and the best way I could see doing that was as a, was as a leader in the Marine Corps. So I, I went the officer route so that I could lead Marines, um, through, throughout the, the world. And I guess during your college and young times, the leadership aspect was really big. Um, can you tell us like about any specific moments within the Marine Corps that, you know, taught you about leadership or do you have a certain memory of like a time when you were doing something that you're like leading something? Yeah. So a couple a couple memories come come to mind, and so I'm going to go through three three things. Um, the first thing is a run, so I'll talk about that run. The second thing was a large scale exercise, and the third thing was a political engagement. So I'll start with the run. So very basically, when I was in charge of 35 Marines in charge of a platoon, uh, I realized doing this one training exercise where we were running down a hill with a bunch of heavy stuff down our back on our back, uh, that leadership was, was more than just talking. It was doing right. And I can clearly remember when I twisted my ankle, but still made sure that I was doing the fireman's carry aspects of, of the run and making sure that I was carrying the heaviest load at all times, because it was not as simple as telling people to be motivated, telling people to run hard, but actually leading from the front. So that, that was the first experience. The second experience was leading that large scale exercise. So I set up a training exercise for the 300 person battalion. And I designed this training exercise and then I had to run it. And while I was running it, I, I realized that there's this, this um, gap between real life and training, right? And there's, and you're never going to connect to those two completely. But what our, our job was, was to do it as well as we possibly could. And specifically there was a time where someone was trying to prevent themselves from ending up in a trap, which is great. That's, that's wonderful. Try to prevent, prevent the bad thing from happening. But my training was what to do when the bad thing happens. So I had to tell them, no, stop. You have to fall into the trap. Yes, it's a trap, but you have to keep going because the training is important, right? And if it was real life, would we be saying, no, keep going, go forward, don't trust your instincts? No, of course not. But training needs to be able to, 
get to a lot of different edge cases that might not happen in real life, but they could. And then the third area was this political engagement that I was speaking of. Um, I found myself in a four-person team that was running the U.S. policy um, effort for the Yemen civil war. So basically what we were trying to do is support the Saudi coalition in, uh, in holding up the legitimate Yemeni government and trying to reinstall that, that president back into the capital, uh, after, after there was a, a revolution, um, and I got to see this weird intersection of policy, leadership, and execution, where at, at the same time we were being told, cut, cut this intel from, from sharing with our, with our friends, but at the same time, tell our friends to do this. And at the same time, our friends were getting, uh, the Saudis were getting missiles shot into their country from Yemen. So you have these missiles coming in, we're telling them, um, change the way you do things. And at the same time, we're saying, we're not going to give you any more intel. So like, it was a really complex problem. And I got to see that intersection of leadership, policy, and execution, uh, which really helped solidify to me what experience can do, because I was working with heavily experienced operators uh, and prior to that, I probably had the bias that all all young people have that intelligence trumps experience, right? I'm smarter than you. Well, who cares that you've been doing it for 10 years? Uh, well, I got to see what it looked like when people did complex problems and had 20 years of experience, 30 years of experience. Uh, and it was, it was just uh, jaw-dropping. So those are the three leadership experiences that I, I would like to highlight from the Marine Corps. And it was, once again, it was running up and down a hill, running a large scale exercise, and then being at that center of, of policy, uh, leadership and execution. So I feel like listening to your stories, it's definitely very unorthodox knowing now that you work at Alvarez and Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was, um, some things that stuck out to me were, firstly, you talked about leadership, not just being speaking, but action. Second was your insistence on carrying the heaviest load. And then third was like your experience in working in pretty crazy things like the Syrian civil war. So I was just wondering, how do you think that all these skills or experiences translated to your current role at Alvarez? And what made you eventually leave that role in the Marines and, you know, join the corporate world? Yeah. So a lot, a lot to unpack there, but I'll, I'll start with your last question. So your last question was, why did I leave the Marine Corps and pursue a, a corporate career? So I love the Marine Corps. I love Marines. I always want to be there for them. And I, I enjoyed my time in the Marine Corps. There were a couple aspects that were frustrating. One is that last experience that you just that you just heard about um, working with the Yemen Civil War. I knew that was going to be a highlight of my career for for years and years. I wasn't going to be able to do something like that all the time. 
right? So that was one aspect that was frustrating. Another aspect is it's very structured. So your, your ability to progress in the Marine Corps is structured to a point uh, 100%. It's, it's structured 100%. So there's no ability to, to, be, uh, to chart your own path. So those two things really brought me to, well, I want to continue to do the hardest and most complicated problems in the world. So how can I do that? And uh, looking out and getting an MBA from the Combs was, was one of those options. So I actually uh, left the Marine Corps and started at um, the Combs directly after that. Um, so I had applied while I was still in the Marine Corps and uh, exited to McCombs. So that was that's the last part of your question. We'll go back to the beginning of your question. And how does uh, leadership by example, taking the heaviest load and um, and being in the most complex problems relate to the work that I do now? Well, it's those are one for one. Uh, at Alvarez and Marsal are, our leaders are specifically um, leaders by example. We specifically take the heaviest load. An example, on a recent engagement, there were many slides that needed to be created, right? This is a silly example. It's about slides. But on this example, these slides had to be created every week. And I was leading the project. There was three other people working on the project, but I was I was in charge of the project. And I took the heaviest load. So I was creating the most slides. But I didn't do it because I'm the only one that can do it or that I don't trust my team. I did it so that we would be the most successful. And why do I say that? Because then I can have my subject matter experts focus and do the things that are going to be the most impactful for them to do. And the stuff that's less impactful, I can take those things um, and make sure that they get done. So we don't push down busy work, right? We'll, we'll, we make sure that it gets done, but it's not like the lowest man on the totem pole just gets all the busy work. Um, so that's, that's the leadership by example and, and taking that, that heaviest load. Um, I wanted to follow up. Oh, go ahead. On the, on the heaviest load part. Um, and I get it's like a really great leadership quality of like how you're taking on more work and leading by example. But in some sort of way, do you think leadership also means delegating more work out and leaving less for yourself to manage? Like, I just want to understand this yeah. concept of taking a lot of load. So, so a couple things. One, is delegation important? 100%. People who can't delegate fail at Alvarez and Marsal anywhere, right? So, so full stop, you're right. However, what's important is how you delegate and what you delegate, right? And to that extent, what I think makes a successful leader is finding the talents and finding the, the value add that you're team has and employing them to the best of their ability, right? And if that means I'm going to put a heavy load on the senior associate because 
one, they can take it. Two, it's gonna be it's gonna be high quality deliverables, and I need those high quality deliverables from my for my client. Then yeah, of course I'm gonna put a, push a heavy load on that person, a hundred percent. But it's employing your team to their best abilities, uh, and if the summary slides of of a presentation is not the best use of someone's time, then I'm going to do that, right? I am good at that. So I'm going to make sure that I leverage myself as well as my team. There was one other aspect to your, your question about the, the complex problems and high stress environments. So nothing in the business world is life or death, right? So there's no mortars landing a hundred yards from, from where I'm sleeping on a, on a daily basis. So like the stakes are lower, right? The stakes are lower. Uh, but the complexity is not. So at Alvarez and Mersal, specifically in the merger and acquisition services group within the private equity services division, we only deal with complex problems. One, we're too expensive to, to deal with simple things. Um, two, we're known for complex complexity. We're known for challenging problems and crisis even, right? So Alvarez and Marsal has a brand that has been developed over the last four decades around crisis management. We, we did Lehman Brothers. That was a crisis, right? Uh, it, we did Anderson Consulting. That was a crisis, a crisis of faith in the company. So, so that brand continues to, to do great things for us and allows us to, to focus on, on those kind of problems. So um, all of my transactions, all of my work has always been in very complex environments. And I, I saw on your LinkedIn that you, you work uh, more on the DSPAC side of things as well. Um, and there's things like, you know, in recent times, there's like Virgin Galactic, Nicola, like these companies all went through a SPAC during COVID times. So I was wondering if you could talk a little about what is a SPAC for people that don't really know in the show. Um, and in general, explain what's your role in that yeah. process. So one quick clarification, I don't work primarily in, in SPACs, but I, I have done them because they are, like, like we just talked about, uh, an example of an incredibly complex situation. So uh, real quick, uh, in a SPAC, there is a company that wants to go public, but the IPO process is a huge, complex vehicle in which to take. So there's another asp, another way to do it, which is called DSPAC. What that means is a SPAC, which is a special purpose acquisition company that's been created as a public company, but has no operations, merges with a private company to create a new um, publicly traded company that has a business, right? So you had a, a public company with no business, a business that was private, 
you merge them together and now you have this public company that is uh, that has a business. So that's called the deep de-SPAC process. So you're turning from, because you're no longer a SPAC, right? This The SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company that doesn't have operations. So when you, once you do have operations, you're no longer a SPAC. So you're de-SPACing. Um, and in that, SPACs uh, had a, a, a really fast history because they they evolved very quickly, but they realized very quickly that uh, low quality assets did not result in good results. So they've started moving to higher quality assets and some of those higher quality assets uh, had more hair on them or complexity. So once that complexity was involved, then we became part of the equation. So an example was a sell side engagement where they were looking to sell to a SPAC and de-SPAC. And uh, that involved creating a model for what this company would look like as a public company under a SPAC. So uh, that is an example of, of work we, we did, but the, the highlight there is that this was a complex situation and that's why you, you bring us in. Um, so, one thing that let me connect for the dots here is we talked about complex projects, right? And we talked about leadership. And what I, I think is important is how these things interact with each other. So I'll give another example of a, a complex project and how leadership was important in that. So working an engagement where there was a, a large company publicly traded company, and they had a business unit. So they had one of their divisions that they didn't want anymore, right? So specifically, this was General Electric. And General Electric has done this a 100 times. Uh, but they had a division that they didn't want. And there was a private equity on the other side of the deal that did want this. So we needed to help the private equity understand what it would look like if this uh, division was its own company. And that would be a complex situation. But this situation was actually more complex than that because there was also a company that already existed and they wanted to put these two together. So why does this involve leadership? Well, it involves leadership because there's so many different stakeholders. So one stakeholder is the CTO at what's called the portfolio company, the company that the private equity already owns. So you have this chief technology officer over here and you have a technology team over here in this division. But this division doesn't have a leader per se over the technology team. That leader exists in the big company. So we have to take this technology team and add it to this other technology team. Well, maybe there's some duplication there, right? So maybe we don't need this whole technology team. We just want to take a piece of it. Well, that's great on paper. But that means someone's going to be doing that work. 
So we had to work with the CTO of the portfolio company to make sure that we're building a plan that is executable and something that he can buy in on. Right. So at the end of the day, when we got to the end, the senior associate on the project describes what the plan is. And I turn to the CTO and say, Hey, anything to add? Does, is this as we discussed? And he goes, yes, this is, this is the plan. We can do this. And right there, boom, sold, right? That, that gives the private equity confidence in the plan. And otherwise, the numbers that we come to are not worth the paper that they're written on if there's not confidence. And that confidence comes from building relationships, building those stakeholders, and creating a sense of leadership over the process so that everyone looks to us as the gatekeepers of what is an executable, realistic plan to move forward. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I guess I wanted to sum it up in a way that makes it easy for us to understand. This is what I was picturing. It was like, there's a board and you have three different like jigsaw puzzles and all of them are dumped on the table and your goal is to make the puzzle piece. Now, in this case, GM came to you and they came, hey, this puzzle piece isn't really fitting, um, but there's like another set that needs to be made. So I guess they're giving you that jigsaw puzzle. Your job is to find that jigsaw puzzle, that other company that makes like a good combination. And I guess that's like where your reputation comes from being like the middle market of like making sure things go hand in hand together. It's like, uh, I guess a lawyer for uh, like relationship kind of, uh, problems, yeah. right? So I'll, I'll, I'll take your analogy and, and change it just a little bit. So okay. the private equity found this puzzle piece and they already have a puzzle piece. The problem is they don't fit together perfectly. So what we're doing is we're literally adjusting the two puzzle pieces so that they do fit together, right? So we're going to help make a business out of these two random assets. Okay, that makes a ton of sense and definitely like a good concise summary of what you said previously. And now I want to shift the focus into, you know, now we understood what this industry is all about. So what would you recommend for students like us from UT or other schools around the country to break into such a field? And people that aren't in like Macombs or something, I know you came from a very untraditional background of going to Marines, coming back. So just general yeah. advice on how to get into that sort of thing. Yes. So a couple things. One, you're a traditional student in McCombs. You're gathering internships. You're gathering club club experiences. Anything that can that can solidify those project real world skills is going to be important, right? So gathering up those internships, looking for part time work. Uh, that is real um, corporate work or looking for uh, projects that happen within classes or within clubs or whatever they, they may be, those are going to be great indicators for me that you're going to be successful, right? Because I can already see that you've done 
these kind of things before. Whether it doesn't have to be the same complexity, it doesn't have to be the same exact work, but the fact that you work within organizations and work on problems, that's the most important thing, right? Um, so, so that's that traditional background. For that non-traditional background, like I was, it's the same things, except it's in a much more condensed time period. So you actually, and this is terrible advice, but it's the only advice I know, is that you have to do more in less time, right? So you have to jam into whatever your transition period of time is, whatever a student that's been working through this for years, who had an internship in high school, which is crazy, but I, I'm going through these resumes. It's, it's nuts what, what your, your cohorts have, have been doing. Um, but this non-traditional student has less time to, to do just as much stuff or more, probably more, because maybe they don't have the educational background that you have. So they have to show that experience background even higher. Um, but once again, it's not just these perfect traditional internships that are important, but also like a great thing that I've seen on a resume is like a part-time job as a bookkeeper. That's fantastic experience, right? Is that, is that like, oh, I worked at a private equity firm um, for a whole summer doing an internship that bookkeeper might have done more interesting work than you. You might have been getting coffee, right? So it's not just looking for the name brands. It's looking for real interesting work. So whether that's, a once again, a project or a whole internship or a part-time job or whatever it is, looking for real work. I wanted to touch on this last part of what you said about the name brands and doing the internships that really matter. So right now, sophomores, like the year before our investment banking journey, I guess, people sort of like care about getting an internship at like these name brands, but they don't realize that not all the name brands have the good experiences that you might get at like non-name brands. So I wanted to ask you, where's that trade-off? Because obviously having a name brand on the resume shows that, oh, wow, like a good company hired him. But at the same time, he might not learn as much as what he did at a smaller firm, smaller company and stuff like that. Yeah. So I can't speak to what Deloitte's looking for, right? But I can tell you when I'm looking at a resume, what I'm looking at is past that name. I, I don't really care whether you were working at Goldman Sachs, Evercore, or a boutique, right? What I think is important is what work did you do when you were there, right? If, if I can see that you worked on a buy side model at an investment bank and that you did the DCF, that's, that's a huge value add for me, right? Versus you worked at Goldman Sachs and took a three-month training program. That's less interesting to me. So to me, the experience is what matters. Now, 
the caveat is there's a there's a point of diminishing returns to this to this answer right and the sweet spot is the middle market i have a huge bias towards people who are working in the middle market whether that's companies or in financial services working for middle market clients so anything to do with the middle market is super interesting to me even if i was only recruiting for people to do large corporate clients and the reason why the middle market's so interesting is because you're doing more impactful work because there's less bureaucracy right so if you do a project with dell you're and you're doing something in their finance department you're going to be so specific you're going to be working on like the first three month collection model of accounts receivable in one sub department of a sub department, right? So specific because there's going to be a hundred people working on that exact project. So like the person who's working on a bigger picture is super high level, right? But at a middle market company, maybe your project is looking at how to optimize collections period that's much more interesting that's an interesting project that's going to help you understand how financial processes work how does the order to cash process in a business work so to me middle market's the sweet spot bulge bracket large cap companies the the experience is a lot more superficial um and small companies some of the stuff doesn't scale and doesn't isn't less relevant right so working at like uh, a boutique shop like a um like a retail a retail store that's like a one one off is going to be harder to explain how that fits into the work that i do than if you were working at, call it uh, like Chipotle operations or, you know, whatever. So like something in between that and McDonald's. Um, That's going to be more interesting once you're at the McDonald's level, probably also the Chipotle level for that, for that matter. uh, The, the skills are going to be so narrow. So once again, sweet spot, middle market, at least for me. I think earlier you mentioned that this like doing more with less is terrible advice, but I kind of disagree with you. I think that's like a very good point. And usually people aren't as uh, direct about the experience mattering more than the brand. So I think that's like a great insight that students should apply as opposed to just seeking like the brand for internships. And just to wrap up, the podcast i think we got some great um insights from your roles your background before alvarez so i wanted to ask you our signature question which is let's suppose you wake up one day and you find out that you have a million dollars in the bank that's a shit ton of money what would you do with that million dollars so i would definitely save my million dollars or very much a lot of it um 
but a couple things I would buy. I want a gravel race bike. So I love gravel riding, um, riding bikes and a gravel race bike. That's really, really silly. Like just super silly, like something I don't deserve to, to be riding something that's going to make people say like, what does this guy think he is a pro? Um, that's what I want to buy. Like just something ridiculous, like a $12,000 bicycle. That's a wrap on today's episode with Kevin Lenoir, a veteran, MA focused professional, and dirt bike enthusiast. 